Morning, my name's Lindsay Searle and I'm the women's ministry leader here at the church. And today I have the privilege of reading from Acts 4, uh, verses 23 to 31. If you don't have a Bible, we have them available at the back of the church as a gift for you. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all of, the, of that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting at was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm James, as we haven't met before. I've got the joy of opening up God's Word this morning as we continue our, our sermon series in the book of Acts. And what we're going to be doing over the next nine weeks, so this is a 10-week series, we're going to be looking at how the gospel, it's, it's unstoppable. We're going to be seeing that, that, you know, because Christ is ascended, He's reigning and ruling from heaven, He's given us this task, He's empowered us by His Spirit to take this gospel to the world. We're going to see that for us as disciples of Jesus, that we can be making and growing disciples of Jesus in Western Sydney. And so my prayer is that as we do this series, that we'll grasp and understand who God is bigger, and that we'll know what we're here to do as a church. And so as we come to God's Word now, let's pray and let's ask Him for help, because we've got We've got a really great passage, a really big one, and so let's, let's, let's get into it and let's ask God for help this morning. Heavenly Father, um, we, we, we come as humble servants who have been redeemed and washed by the blood of the Lamb. We just ask now that um, we get to know you more. We want to know you, we want to know Jesus more, and, and just... Help us to understand who you are more clearly so that as we face life, we face it with hope and confidence because we just got a glimpse of who you are and of your faithfulness and of your promises that you've made and that we have confidence that one day Christ will return and we will see you face to face. And so we ask for your help now. May your spirit be powerfully at work in our lives. Um, today we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a moment where you, you, you couldn't do anything wrong? Have you, or have you ever had a moment in life where maybe you've been the center of attention, everybody loves you, people want to get to know you, and life just goes well for you? You know, maybe you found, you know, you got a new job, you're, you're a couple of months in, you've worked hard, and your boss sees it and he's like, or she's like, wow, this is, you know, this you're working well. And so they give you more jobs, bigger jobs. They entrust more to you. They're so glad you're around. Your work colleagues in your new job, they're like, 
we're so glad you're here. You have their favour. And they're like, we need you in this job. And we're so glad you're here. It's going well. Have you ever had a moment like that? And then one Monday morning, they say, oh, what did you do on the weekend? And you go, oh, I went to church. I'm a Christian. Bam. That changes a little bit. Or, or you know, you're a young teenager, you're in high school and, and you've, you've just, you become a Christian and you're just so thankful for Jesus that it overflows out of your life. You've just moved to a new school. You're in, you're in the good crowd. <coughs> they love you being around. They want to know you. They message you. They include you in all their things. And you feel like you're really settling well into high school in a new location as a Christian. And then, they, and then one day there's a social agenda on at school and you decide, I'm not going to partake in that. And bam, they're gone, oh, you're a Christian. Or maybe, you know, like you're retired, you move to a retirement village and you can go swimming down at the pool, you can go and play bridge or you go and have a feed at morning tea and you're gathered around and you're just talking to some people and they don't mind hanging out with you and then all of a sudden they find out that you're a Christian and go, sorry, don't tell me anything about God, I'm too old, I don't need it in my life. Have you ever experienced that or, or, or how would you respond how would you respond to something like that? Or what do you do? How do you respond in a crisis when things don't go your way or suffering comes along? Or what do you do as opposition, it, it hits your world? Well, today I want us to just to, to, to think about this question of as well, how can we respond in the face of opposition from the very people we used to be? We're going, to, we're going to think about, well, how can we respond as opposition or suffering comes or, or opposition or a crisis comes from the very people we used to be? Because see, in, in Acts chapter 4, what's really uh, um, incredible is that in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Christianity is, has gone from 120 to 3,000. This movement, the followers of Jesus, it's growing really fast they're the center of attention. People love them. They have the favor of the people. And you get to Acts chapter 4, and there's a sense in which, wow, Christianity is going really, really well. Everyone wants to come along and hear about it. People from the city come and listen. And, and it's like this movement's really growing. It's like, wow, is this going to be unstoppable? And then, bam, the leaders of the city aren't happy. And we get this first sense, there's actually opposition to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. There's, there's a crisis. We go, hang on, it's been going so well. And now you think, but hang on, the leaders of this city could bring this whole message going out. They could undermine it and stop it from happening. Because that's in a sense what the, the context is of chapter 4. Like You look at verse 23, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back. <coughs> to their people and they've reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them now to know what's happened you've got to go back to chapter the beginning of chapter four now peter and john they've if you go back further they've, they've healed a man he's been lame for 40 years everyone knows that from birth this man was lame he's been healed he's jumping and praising god peter and john that they keep preaching the gospel of jesus but the leaders of the city take offense to it now they don't take offense to the man being healed they actually take offense to them saying that Jesus is the Messiah 
Now, this isn't just a small get-together where they pull Peter and John and bring them to the, you know. It's not your local soccer club having a little meeting about another soccer club down the road and the rest of the city don't know about it. What's happening in chapter 4 is you've got the big wigs of the city, the important leaders who make things happen and make things stop. They sway the the government policies and, and they come before these men They've been brought to them because they're not happy that they're preaching Christ. They're offended by it. What are they offended by? They're offended that that they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's ruling and reigning, that, that he's saying, no, no, you need to repent, turn from your evil and turn to God. See, repentance is a change of mind. They're saying, hey, you no longer have yourself as king or queen of your life, but you need to turn and find Jesus to be king of your life. You're no longer sovereign, but he is sovereign. Turn from your sin and find forgiveness in Jesus. And they're taking offense to it that they come to these men and they say, hey, um, we're not happy with what's happening in the movement of this city of Jerusalem. We're going to ask you to stop doing this. There's opposition, there's a crisis. Hey, we don't want you and we'll lock you up. There's a crisis and they get let let go and they go back to their disciples. They go back to their friends. And and what we see here is I think it's really helpful for us. I think we can see a way in which we can respond, a way in which we can respond to opposition from the very people we used to be. And we're going to see three things this morning about that. And we're going to see three ways in which I think it gives us a, a light into how we can respond. Now, the first way in which we, 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 we could respond is that we, we pray. We pray dependently. Because see, in, in a crisis, or even in suffering as Christians, one of the things that suffering does is it really just tests your faith. Because there's going to be a moment where you can walk away, you can go, this is too much. Peter and John, they're faced with prison, they're faced with opposition. We could walk away. But what, are the, the, what does the early church do? Is we, we notice that they, they pray. They, they stop and they pray. Now, I don't know about you, but, but in a moment of a crisis in my own life, um, when things happen in my, guess what? Get, get the man flu, it's all about me. The situation is always about me. And did you notice how these, these people prayed? Did you notice that they, they prayed, dear God, we just pray that you'll remove this persecution. Dear God, take this away from us. Dear God, heal us. Dear God, you know, make sure our life's a little bit easier for us. Could you please remove all these things from our life? They didn't pray that. <laughs> now, now, there's nothing wrong with us praying for those kind of things. But did you notice the way in which they prayed? They weren't me-centered prayers. It was, it was actually really, they're saying, hey, don't remove this. They're actually just going, hey, we want to pray and give thanks. And they pray the character of God back to God himself. And there's actually three things I noticed in this prayer. There's three things. The first one is that they give thanks for God fulfilling his promises. We praise God for his sovereignty and his wisdom. And they petition God for the honor of Jesus. In this prayer, we see that they give thanks <coughs> for God fulfilling his promises. Now, that's verse, just have a look at your Bibles. Go to verse 24. When they heard this, right, the people have heard about the, the opposition and the crisis. They've raised their voices together in prayer to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything, everything visible and invisible. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our Father David. Now what they're saying here is, okay, 
What comes next is Psalm 2. And it's a promise. And again, David spoke about this through the parallel spirit. Why do nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They're actually going, we give thanks that you're a God who fulfills your promises. Because this has happened. You know, Psalm 2 has been fulfilled in Jesus. They go, you are a faithful God in the past. We've seen it in Jesus and therefore we are thankful for whatever comes in. Like whatever comes in front of us, we know we can trust you. But not only that, do you notice that there's this theme of sovereignty here? They praise God for his sovereignty and his wisdom. Now, sovereign Lord, like you made the heavens and the earth, the invisible. And the, you know, the idea of sovereignty is that he is a ruler and a reigner, that, that he is over all things. So therefore, whether it's invisible or visible, nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing happens that God doesn't want to happen. God ordains and He's in control and all these things that go on. That's what the sovereignty of God means. So then for whatever you're going through, whether it's suffering, whether it's opposition, whether it's a crisis, God is not at all shocked or surprised by the reality of, of what you're facing today. And so they're praying this. Give us comfort. So have a look at verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, now we read about that in Luke, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of God, the Israel, in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Right? They, it was evil. They conspired to kill the Messiah. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, we said that before the foundation of God planned that he would use the cross to save his people. But you might have noticed in some of your translations, it will have said um, predestined, predetermined. And I think the NIV is actually quite helpful because it's helping us know that he decided beforehand this should happen. And now what it's saying, what they're doing is they're praying back to God saying, you are sovereign and in control. In a way, I think this is what they're, they're saying. Sovereign Lord, you are sovereign. Nothing happens outside of your control. And, and we know this by the cross, that evil was conspired. But you're not surprised, but you also, that also through that, you ordained that you would rescue us. So what they're saying is, in the most evil moment in history, in the most darkest moment, in the greatest suffering... You use that so that we could be here today, redeemed, forgiven, and children of God. And so if you did that, God, whatever we face, whether it's cancer, whether it's opposition to the gospel, whatever it is in our jobs, our careers, with our family, with our parenting, whatever it may be, we know that you'll bring good and we can trust you in it. And that brings us comfort, whether I die or whether I live, because you're a sovereign God. Romans 8, you know, for those who love him, in all things, he works together for their good. He brings good out of bad. And so they're praying, going, God, you are in control of all things. We pray to the one who was never surprised by anything we have faced or we encounter. And therefore, knowing that God's, you can't pray to God unless you believe that he's sovereign. Like our prayer is saying we are dependent upon you. And so here in this moment, they're petitioning God as well in verse 29, they're saying, God, 
honour Jesus in this. Not saying remove the opposition. May we honour the name of Jesus in whatever comes our way. May we speak boldly. May you stretch out your hands and heal and perform. Like they're saying, hey, we want you to make so much of Jesus. Honour him, raise him up. We want you that through whatever we go through, that Christ will be just honoured. Whatever happens, God, make much of Jesus. May we decrease so he increases. May we have the courage and the boldness to honour him. It's a really, it's an intrigue. I remember talking with a guy once, he said, oh, I find it awkward that people pray scripture. When actually, if you go to the New Testament, if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see that they're just constantly praying scripture. Well, that's a bit interesting, like, you're talking to God back who God is. He's revealed himself to us and yet we can pray back sovereign Lord. There's something incredible about that. That as we pray back who God is, as we talk to him about his character, it does something to our mind which then affects our emotions, which then affects how we act. It actually brings comfort and helps us have a perspective of what life's about. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking things from God for ourselves, but actually there's something beautiful about praying Scripture. It it does something to us. It embeds it in our hearts. We pray saying, I'm going to you, God, to trust you, to know that there's... I'm going to trust you no matter how I feel about this moment. I'm going to trust you because you're the God who's in control of all things. Now, <clears throat> they're handing stuff over to God. Now, I don't know about you. Know, I, I, I was a mechanic for 10 years. I'm a tradie. And so I, I don't know whether you've heard this before, but, but I, um, people would come to me with problems, right? Either their, their remote battery was flat, they couldn't open the car with the remote, or they come to you, their, you know, their brakes aren't working real well. They come to you, the engine's blown up. And, and you're bringing the car to me because in a, in, in a sense, you've, you've got no control. You don't know what to do in this moment. You're worried, you're anxious. You know, people fret and they come and you can see that they're really worried about what's going to cost and what's going to happen. But they come to me and they grab the keys and there's something about handing the set of keys to me that says... We're freeing ourselves from this and we're leaving it with you. It's saying, I can't change the situation, but you can. And when we pray, we're handing the keys of our life and saying, God, you're it. We're dependent upon you for everything we do. It's, it's handing, when we pray, we're actually going, hey, I'm not in control, but, but we know you're the one who is. We're handing the keys of our life to him as we pray. I haven't got this. When we, when we, and, then, and so we go, oh, I'm going to hand the keys over. And you free yourself of that. And they respond and they take the truth of God and they pray it back to him. And it affects how they feel and they act and they think. I wonder, have you ever reflected on your prayer life? Have you ever reflected on how you pray? Have you ever reflected on how people pray in public? Because it reflects and tells us a lot about the person and and what's going on. 
Are, are they prayers that, that, that are filled with just going, hey, God, you are, you are this? Petitioning him to honour Jesus, petitioning him to go, hey, we want to make Jesus known. We, we, we don't know what's happening, but we know you're in control. And as a church, we want to have a church where we have a culture of prayerful dependence upon God. Not a me-centeredness, but a God-centeredness. Prayers that are enriched and saturated in the word of God and his promises. See, the sovereignty of God means that in our opposition or in our crisis or in our suffering, it means we can pray to him and he hears our prayers. Because we know that he's been through everything that we have been through. Jesus has been through everything that we have ever faced. And it doesn't, I think it doesn't take long in a crisis to see how utterly powerless we really are. See, the moments I don't pray are the moments, right? When, when I don't pray, I'm, I'm telling myself I'm in control of my whole situation. But when we pray, it's going, I'm not in control. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you might go, hey, I, I, I don't believe in prayer, right? Well, you know, I don't want you to do that. But what's really, I find really interesting is that you, you, you can be against God. You don't, might not want anything to do with him. But when real tragedy strikes, real tragedy, even on the media, when real tragedy strikes, we go, you reach out and you go, God, I don't even know if you're there, but I want you to be there because I'm totally and utterly hopeless. The media even does it. And so in a sense, prayer, it's a reminder that we're utterly dependent. And so as Christians, now we know that every breath, all of our life comes from God. So that means that every moment of every second of every hour of every day, we are actually fully dependent upon God. We are never, you know, we've got this God. But as Christians, we go, no, 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 you've got it. And so we pray back to God. We have direct access to the God of the universe in our crises and our opposition. This week, what will your first response be as you face opposition or persecution or a crisis from the very people that you used to be? You know, as you sit in the nurse's ward and they find out you're a Christian or as you make a stand for justice that's in line with the gospel and you get opposition, we pray back to God that he's in control. Did you also notice at the end of the, 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 the prayer that the, they've asked to honour God, but they've actually, they're not asked for protection. They've not asked that the crisis will go away. But did you notice here in verse 29, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word boldly. Give us courage to see people come to Christ. And so the second thing is that we speak boldly. How, how can we respond? Well, we, we can respond by speaking boldly. Now, keep pressing on sharing Jesus. But I actually think here in Acts chapter 4, um, I think he is talking about speaking boldly to those who don't know Jesus. But actually, I also think he's saying we are to continue speaking boldly amongst ourselves. So it's not this idea of just go out in the world and conquer the world and speak. But he's actually saying, no, we too every day need to speak the gospel to each other. Now, in verse 29, we see this, speak boldly with great stretch out, right? 
But then you get to verse 33, where the believers are together, they're meeting all the time, and it says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So I think what's happening is they're praying that we'll speak boldly in our world where we can, but also we're going to speak boldly in the foyer after church about who Jesus is. We're never going to move on from it. We're going to speak the truth of the gospel every day to ourselves. That in the midst of opposition or suffering, we need to speak boldly to a world, but we actually need to remind ourselves every day of who Jesus is, of the glorious truth of his life, death and resurrection. Because opposition and suffering, I think, often leads us to forget who Jesus is. They want to speak boldly. Why? Because our primary task is to testify to Jesus. Now, you may have heard that expression, we've been created with a purpose. Now, in a way, when that's used in the, in the public forum, being created with a purpose is basically a me-centered idea. You've been created with a purpose, go and conquer it and you get it. But for us, as followers of Jesus, we've now been saved with a purpose. And our primary purpose in Acts 1 and 2 and Matthew 28, our primary purpose now in all of life is to honor and to make the gospel go to the ends of the earth. That's our primary task. And prayer aligns us to that mission and that vision. To pray that I'll speak boldly is to say the, the world doesn't revolve around me and my self-ego. Now, Robert Coleman wrote a, a book in 1963. It, 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 I think it was called The Master of Evangelism or something like that. Um, it's a famous book on discipleship. And he says, world evangelism is the divinely ordered goal <coughs> for all of us. Not only is it attainable, it is inevitable. Whether or not we believe it, someday the gospel of the kingdom will be heard to the ends of the earth. The gospel of the universe will not be defeated in his purposes. How does, the, how does the kingdom of God come in? It goes through the preaching of the gospel. It's going and taking Jesus. It's taking this unstoppable gospel to the ends of the earth. The Israelite leaders, the, the Pontius Pilate, they thought they could stop this message. Right, in verse 1 of chapter 4, there's opposition, there's a crisis. What are we going to do? It feels like the gospel is stoppable now. But you just read a couple more verses later and no matter what, no, 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 actually, it doesn't matter how much opposition comes, it's, it's going to go out. You know, it's an incredible scene. You, you, you've got Peter and John, they're, they're preaching to a crowd of people about Jesus, his life, death and, and resurrection. Repent and believe. And they get dragged off. Now, for any movement, if you get arrested and dragged off in that moment where you're being called to do something, you think, it's going to stop. Like, you're sitting there and you listen to this. You go, dude, if those two blokes got dragged off, there's no, I'm not going to do what they want to do. And yet, as they're being dragged off, what, what do we see? There's thousands who trust and repent and follow Jesus. But see, I, I think Satan wants to distract us. We distract ourselves. And we make good things become God things. See, to speak boldly is to remind you that you, to, to what's really at the center of this world. Because what can happen is good things like houses and sport and careers, those that are good things, they can become ultimate purposes in our life that we see that that's our primary task. There's nothing better than to be distracted by being caught up in materialism. 
having a nice house that can distract you from our primary purpose, our kids' education, having a good education, moving to Australia for a better life. They're the very things, they're good things that can become God things. That we can see that the purpose of our life is to, to have a career, for our kids to have a great education, that to have soccer success, to have a supporting career, that that's our primary purpose. No, no, they're wonderful things for us to do, but amidst that, the primary task in all of that is to honour Jesus and to preach and to make him known, to preach him to ourselves, to one another and to the world around us. You know, sometimes we can hold people back from serving Jesus. You know, sometimes we can hold our kids back because of your own dreams and your own aspirations for them that are good, you know, you want them to have a career, you want them to become a lawyer or a doctor or a trader or whatever. And, and we can really want those things. And, and they're good things, right? But your child goes, I, I want to do ministry full time. And you go, oh, I didn't raise you for that. Let someone else go and do that. That's, that's not for my kids. That's for someone else. Whereas in that moment, you've been distracted from the primary, like whether they're <laughs> going to be a whether they're going to be a lawyer, or whether they go in the ministry, their primary task is to just, in whatever we do, is that we want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And therefore, we have a big vision because we have a big God. Knowing this, though, also means that when we face opposition, we'll pray and we'll speak boldly. And you notice that, don't you, in verse 39? And then afterwards, the place shook, it really tells it, and they filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Now, in this moment, um, so it's, a, it's a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. It's obviously God's at work to, to show them that God's in this and this is what he's doing. But, but, but I suppose here's just a side note, just for a moment, just to help us, because a couple of things happen in Acts. Sometimes we do some kooky things with Acts. <coughs> and, and one of those things that sometimes happens is maybe you've come from that, maybe you believe it. Sometimes you may have come from a background where, you know, there's a second blessing. And the idea of this teaching is that you become a Christian and then a month, two, three or four months later, there's a second blessing that's poured out by the Holy Spirit in which you speak in tongues. And if that hasn't happened, you can't be a Christian. Now, here in Acts, it's often used, you know, but, but this passage actually tells us that can't be true because they're filled with the Spirit. But remember, they're all filled here, but many of them have already been filled back in Acts chapter 2. Do you see what I mean? Like, it can't be. So it sort of helps us understand that there isn't this just second blessing in which, you know, you become a Christian and then down the track. No, no, that's not what the book of Acts shows us. But they're, they're filled. Now, now, here's another way of thinking about filled. Um, imagine you've got a, a dad and, a, and their young daughter. They're walking down the street and, and the daughter's in his, you know, the dad's got hold of the daughter. The daughter's got hold of the dad and they're walking down the main street and you're behind them and you're watching them and you go, wow, that's really intimate. In that moment, we know that she's a daughter. That's her father. They're the family. They're in this together. But then, then they get down the track and the father puts the daughter down and she just walks next to the father. And you go, now that's, not as, that's not as an intimate moment, is it? But you're still walking there and you go, has her status as a daughter changed in that moment? No. She's still a daughter. 
She's still a daughter in that moment, whether she's in the... And so there seems to be a sense in which there are moments in which we've all got the Spirit as followers of Jesus, but there are moments in which there is more, you know, it sort of feels more... Right? It doesn't change whether you're feeling it or not. It's, it's still the same reality, but there are moments where we recognize and go, wow, God is at work. Look who Jesus is. Real moments where we go, God is really at work in this and, and, and wow, and it gives you, and you're empowered to share and do things. Just decide, I just think it's helpful for us in Acts a little bit to think about that. But then, so what do we do? Okay, as, as opposition comes along from the very people we used to be, well, we, we speak boldly, right? We speak boldly to us and we speak boldly to the world around us so that whether we're out there or in here we we have the courage to you know hey you know you're having a rough week yeah and, and you have the courage to say hey but you know who Jesus is now I, I had a friend um, a close friend who I used to hang out a lot with and and we go and eat at Macca's you go and eat at KFC and occasionally very rarely we go and eat at a restaurant but there's one thing about Macca's you know Macca's and KFC in a restaurant is that's always fixed price you know, like the, the price of the menu is always the same and that's what you pay. But my mate, he was just bold all the time. Whether it was Macca's KFC or if you ate in a $50, $100 per person feed and it was set price, you know what the boldness of every time we ate out he'd do? He'd say, could I have a discount please? Every time. He's always asking for discounts. He was bold. And in a sense here, it's, it's praying that we'll be a bit bold like that with each other. To have the courage in a moment to go, you know what? Jesus has got this. I don't know how you're feeling in your suffering, but hey, Jesus has got this. Or to speak the sovereignty or to speak about the cross or the redemption. Or, like, it's, it's just to be bold. Now, we speak boldly. But thirdly, I, I want us to see that we can give generously. Not only do they speak boldly, but they want to live bold lives. And I think we see that in verses 32 to 37. We see lives transformed, empowered by the Spirit. That They just shape everything they do, that they give generously. Not just with money, right? It's time, energy, resources, whatever they had. Because I don't know about you, but in a time of crisis, I often pull back. I'll often, bot it, I'll often um, bolt down the hatches. I'll try and think I need, to, I need to pull back a little bit when things go the wrong way for me. Now... I'm making, I, I, I never make political statements from the front, right? But, but this week, um, I think Victoria, it's Victoria in Australia, I think Victoria's in Australia. Um, sorry, but if, if you're, sorry, if you're from Melbourne, it's okay. But you know, like this week, the, the, the headlines have been buzzing because there's a bit of a financial crisis in Victoria and they've had to cancel the Commonwealth Games. Why? Because there's a, there's a crisis. And whatever your ideas of it, it doesn't matter, it's, but they've pulled back, Right? Now, the RBA is doing a bit of a similar thing, you know. The, there's a crisis that inflation is going so fast that they've got to do something to, to pull it back. And now when I suffer, when I go through moments of life, I really want to pull in. But here what we see is they're filled with the Spirit. They've just got this amazingness of who God is. And rather than, than restrict, they just, they're, they're seen to be generous in all that they do, whether it's with money or, you know, or food. They, they provide food for each other. They walk along the marginalized. They walk among those who are poor and the rich hang out with them and they do whatever they can for the sake of the gospel. They're just pooling their resources for the sake of this purpose in life. See, co 
Crises often divide people. Get a married couple who have problems with money. Gets a bit hot under the collar. The kids notice it and, and it often divides families. But here they're empowered by this and it doesn't divide them, but it brings them together. They pray for an understanding of God's sovereignty. They pray that they'll speak. So therefore that, that it overflows. They're just really generous with their resources. They're not going to stop us working together for the sake of Jesus. And we notice that, don't we, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, that, that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Great power, they testified to the resurrection of Jesus. God's grace was powerfully at work in them. Look at verse 34. There were no needy people among them. From time to time, some would sell, you know, they'd own land or their houses they sold, brought the money from the sales. They submitted to the leadership and said, hey, here's the money you do as you think's needed for the sake of this. You got, and, and it goes on. There's just this, this sense of just their, their oneness in this together. In the crisis, they're one. And they live together and they keep plugging along. I get very me-centered when things go wrong. But here, the gospel, it just, it just makes them more outward, driven by the gospel. It, you know, I wonder whether that means, maybe for you, you, you have time to cook food and provide meals for people. You have time to, 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 to give to, to some of the courses that we have and, and, you know, the, and, and, and bring your energy and your time. You have time to hang out with people. Maybe you have financial resources in which you can go, hey, actually I've, I've invested well and therefore I can give, I can't give my time and my energy, but boy, I can give financially. Because they see that their task is for the advancing of the gospel and that the world goes, God must really be among these people. Now here's a side note just for one moment, right? This passage can be used um, to push an, ide an ideology of socialism or communism. I don't know whether you've come across it, I have. So you can, you can actually, people will use it and go, hey, the ideology of socialism should be implied because the early Christians did it. Now, uh, I haven't got time to explain, but it's probably a very poor reading of the text. It's not an ideology of socialism that drives them, it's the, it's the gospel of grace. It's, they're, they're driven by the gospel they're shaped by that. They give sacrifice. And even then, like, you look at verse 34 a little bit. It's hard to know, but it, like, it almost reads as if some of them, right, they have multiple houses by the beach. So they don't sell their own house. They just go, well, I'm going to sell that house because there's a need. I'm going to give some of that. To, you know, like, it's not like it's saying all of us go sell up our houses and share together and we'll dispute. No, no, no. It's just what it's saying is the spirit worked, the gospel grew, and, and they were shaped by it to give generously. It shaped everything they do. Now, for us as a church, we have, you know, over the next 12 months, I think we've got some big stuff coming up. We've got big stuff coming up where we need to pool our resources for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Things in which we go, hey, we want to see it go out. We want to see life change. And we're going to have to pool some of those resources. Now, one of the things is we do often when it gets hard is we pull back. Whereas I think there's a sense in here where it's just like, hey, we just work out what it means to be generous in those moments. Rather than push out, we push in. Because what we see here in this passage is that the gospel is unstoppable when opposition comes. It's unstoppable. And so what do we do when we face opposition from the very people we used to be? Well, we, we pray, we speak and we give. We, we have hearts that just overflow. We're going, hey, we're just going to live generous lives in the way that we can 
for the sake of Jesus. And so as, as those things come and push, whether it's a crisis of opposition to Jesus, or even if it's suffering comes along, whatever it may be, I, I think this passage really helps us to say, hey, go, go and pray. We pray together as God's people. We pray big prayers. We, you know, and we, we, we speak to each other and we speak to the world. And we, we want to be people who give generously of whatever we have as we can. Now, we want to do that for the sake of the fame of Jesus. Did you notice that in a sense that they're here praying that, the, that, that Jesus will go out and he'll be made much of? And so as we do that, here's something to remember. That the very people who are opposing us and that message were the very people you once were. You can never sit on the fence with Jesus. There's a point in your life where you were living in darkness and the light of Jesus shone on your dark heart. You were once the people whom are opposing you. It's really helpful, isn't it? It helps us actually think about as we get opposition or as people speak badly about us, we don't antagonize them, that we don't call them bigots. We, we, we actually go to them in love and grace and mercy because we were once them, but by God's grace, we no longer are. And we go, you know what, we look to the cross. We're empowered by looking at the gospel to go, God in his sovereignty through evil men brought about good so that you and me could be here this morning redeemed, rescued and forgiven. So that Christ who actually suffered the worst suffering of all so we wouldn't have to suffer under the wrath of God. Who was rejected, who was oppressed, who was ultimately tempted in a way that we've never been tempted. Who, who broke into this world in a manger, the one who gave up his heavenly palace so that we could receive a heavenly palace forever. How do we respond? We delight in the gospel by we pray, we give, and we, and we speak boldly. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what's going to come our way this week. There may be moments of great joy. There may be moments where we're at the center of things and people are happy with us. There may be moments where we get diagnoses of terminal cancer. There may be moments where we get great opposition because we said something about you in the workplace. And so, Father, in that, we just really ask that your spirit will work in us to just be a community that pours our hearts out in prayer to you, that we see that through evil you do good. And, and so, Father, we just really ask you to help us to speak boldly to one another the truths of who you are regularly. Um, and, and, Father, we just pray that we'll be people who are marked by generosity in whatever form that looks like for us, whether we're rich or poor or whether we're marginalized or whether we're at the center of parliament. Um, Lord, we, we pray this because actually really we see here that the early church just wanted to bring honor and glory to you. And so we want to lift your name up high to, to make much of Jesus, whether it's in suffering or whether it's in happiness, whether it's in opposition or whether it's in the moments of favor. And so, Father, we pray this for your name. Amen.